0: Hey, everybody. It's Reagan Canope and Alex Titus back with you for the Oregon Bridge podcast.
1: I think it was a reasonably good year for Republicans. And then at the end of the day, I think this election really showed how nationalized politics is really becoming. Republicans in Oregon really tried to focus on local issues and you just kind of shake your head and you say, wait a second, if you pull people and you say, is the city of Portland headed in the right direction? There are very few people that would agree with that. But at the same token, they're still voting in the party that's been in power now for, I guess, 36 years in the governor's mansion.
0: We're here with Jimmy Crumpacker. He is a businessman from Oregon, and he's run for Congress. And so he understands the landscape here in terms of business and politics and where they intersect and how they work together. And so we just wanted to chat with him. And also because Ben's in D.C. and is terrible at scheduling. So we had to bring in our friend Jimmy here. So, Jimmy, we're so glad to have you here on the pod today. It's really good to be back with you guys. Thank you very much for having me. So I kind of wanted to talk about first get like the 10,000 foot view on Oregon Republicans particularly, right? You're a Republican. I'm a Republican. Alex is a Republican, right? There's no Ben here to counterbalance, so we can just have fun. So what I just wanted to basically ask you is you saw the election results nationally You saw the election results in oregon what can oregon republicans do better and what are they doing well now
1: yeah you know i think it was you know a reasonably good year for republicans you know not quite as good as 2010 in the state of oregon that was a great year but Picking up a second congressional seat is a huge win and getting close in a third shows that there's hope maybe down the line that that seat can be flipped. And then at the end of the day, I think this election really showed how nationalized politics is really becoming. You know, Republicans in Oregon really tried to focus on local issues, the homelessness, the really tragic issues we're having with fentanyl and meth across the state, the lack of affordable housing that we're seeing across the state, these are issues that you would think would really damage the party in power. But unfortunately, you know, if you look at the election results, especially for the governor's race in Multnomah County, I think it went almost 80% for Tina Kotek, And you just kind of shake your head and you say, wait a second, you know, if you pull people and you say, is the city of Portland headed in the right direction? There are very few people that would agree with that, but at the same token, they're still voting in the party that's been in power now for, well, I guess, 36 years in the governor's mansion. So it's a little frustrating. Obviously, the governor's race was was complicated by a a third party candidate that sucked in 18 million dollars. And I would argue that 90 to 95 percent of that money probably would have gone to Republican candidates. So. Mm -hmm. I think it's, there are positives to take away, but at the same time, it's also disappointing because I think that this was a huge opportunity for a
2: statewide win for a Republican. Yeah, and and I think that's a really interesting point. And I remember when I was interviewing John Horvick, which this was, I don't even remember how many months ago, probably four, maybe five months ago, but he had given a statistic, I think specifically for voters in Portland, that at least according to one of their polls, only like 3% of them thought Portland was on the right track which is a pretty astounding number when you think about it right that like 97% of people are pissed off <laughs> at the status quo essentially but I think your your point is totally right in the sense of that Republicans I mean both on the state level on the statewide level at the local level then at the you know kind of the congressional level a lot of them ran on crime I mean everybody who listens to this podcast probably saw at least one ad that said you know the radical left is destroying Oregon, blah, 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 blah. I even saw a million of those ads just on my cell phone, which I thought was some pretty interesting ad targeting. But you know, and you obviously, Jimmy, the district that you had run in encompasses a lot of bend. And I know the bend is dealing with, I would say probably not the same amount of the issue that Portland is right. But like, there's a lot of issues around homelessness, there's a lot of issues around camping, the crime issue seems to come up there, I read the Ben bulletin quite often, as well as kind of drug use. I mean, Not to the extent of the issues that are going in Portland, but I mean, a lot of those voters as well, when you look at the results, I mean, the flip was not necessarily there either. What like, why do you think that is? And I like to get individual answers on this, because I know most of the consultants will basically say, they'll say, No, I know my polls tell me it was one thing, right? It was either abortion, or it was Trump, or it was the candidate quality or whatever. And of course, nobody actually knows what the right answer is. But you've talked to a lot of these people. You know you've been to a lot of the community events like why do you think that message didn't resonate or like what did republicans miss
1: yeah you, you know candidate quality is huge all we need to do is look at the georgia results right unfortunately herschel walker underperformed governor kemp by almost 10 points you looked at all republicans swept states statewide office in that state in georgia And then Herschel Walker falls short. So candidate quality is huge, you know, and it was huge across Oregon as well. Um, You know, we were really lucky to field some really strong candidates in for some offices, but weaker ones in other offices. Right. You didn't get a lot of support for either financially or from the National Party for our Senate candidate. You know, and and unfortunately, that's a drag, right? If you look at, you know, the Florida race where you have two huge powers, you know, you have DeSantis raising $206 million, right? And you have Marco Rubio also pulling together. That has huge benefits to everyone. And as we know, you know, whoever's on top of the ballot, you know, pulls everyone along with them. So, you know, I, I do think crime is a major issue. I think the voters are definitely focused on that. But I think that the Democrats did a really good job of distracting voters with national issues. Obviously, you know, by continuing to talk about January 6th, that committee, you know, trying to pop up headlines every couple of weeks, you know, that is a distraction from from people's real lives. I mean, generally speaking, when the president who's in, in power, the opposite party has huge wins. That didn't happen this time. And especially if you consider that inflation is at 40-year highs, you consider that crime in Oregon is the worst it's ever been as far as murder rates in large cities. If you consider that the education system in Oregon is really breaking down, I think we were, what, bottom five or bottom seven between math and English, how we did during the pandemic. So it's kind of across the board. I and mean, I was I was actually listening Reagan to your dad today on OPB and the leader of the House for the Democrats, and it was interesting. The leader of the House said, "You know, we need to take responsibility for what's happening." And I'm thinking, "Wow, like I can't believe that the, they didn't say that before the election happened." And Tina Kotek certainly didn't, you know, say that. <laughs> she in fact blamed Governor Brown in some of her ads, which I thought was fascinating. But you know, for someone who was you know, what was she majority leader for 13 years to then say that she was not part of the problem I find to be, um, you know, uh, unf- unfortunate.
0: Yeah. I think I haven't had a lot of chance to work a ton directly yet with speaker Rayfield. We've had some meetings and stuff, but one of the things you see with him, I think is that he is much more of a, I don't know what better way to put it right. Common sense. Democrat. And if he keeps talking like that, I think that's a good way for him, if I were him, to position Democrats as, okay, we're leading a state, but there's obviously some problems. If you deny there's the problems, you're more likely to be replaced and then take accountability for them. Right. And so I think that strategically, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that, you know, some people relate to that. And kind of what I'm thinking when you were talking about that is like one of the things I think that Republicans didn't do a very good job of this cycle. Um, I think it was kind of generally across the board, except for in places you talked about, Georgia with Kemp, DeSantis, and Rubio, right? When we put forward common sense, conservative, popular policy, we do well. And Kemp was doing that his whole election. But a lot of other candidates were just jumping on national talking points without solutions and saying, oh yeah, inflation's high, we got to fix it, right? Oh, crime's bad, we got to fix it, right? We got to have more policy Because I think that we kind of got stuck in this idea that policy doesn't matter. People don't care about policy. I think people actually care more about policy than we think. And if we present better policy, we're going to do better. And speaking of policy, kind of wanted to get your feedback on what the election results in Oregon are going to do for the business industry and the conversations that are happening in boardrooms and and among CEOs. What are those conversations? You know, if you're having some of those conversations or hearing some of those conversations, what, what are they talking about when they talk about Oregon and business?
1: If you look at the headlines, salt and straw, you know, saying that they're moving out of Portland and probably moving out of Oregon, it seems to be a trend. If you are a major business in downtown Portland, you really can't stick around. And maintaining businesses statewide is incredibly hard because unfortunately, the government, uh, the leadership, the Democratic leadership has not made it seem as though we are the most business-friendly state. If you look at purely on the largest companies in the country outside of Nike, we really don't have any, and those are engines of growth, right? And then well, if you and the look other
0: at- one we do have is Intel, and they're they've started expanding in uh, Ohio, right? You know, right? And that that's in a shockwave through the capital. I mean, there's work being happened, but everything that happens on that. A lot of it's centered around semiconductors, and Republicans are going to say, look, we got to expand that for more manufacturing and other types of businesses, and Democrats are trying to keep it narrow. They only want semiconductors, you know? Right, and to
1: piggyback off of that, when – Leadership in the greater Portland metropolitan area says, Yeah, the most land we can give Intel is 300 acres. And Intel says we need 2,000 acres. And Ohio says, Well, here's 2,000 acres. And Intel says, All right, well, here's $20 billion that we're going to invest. It's, you know, you step back from that and you say, Where's the disconnect here? I don't understand how the local government doesn't see having. A couple thousand construction jobs and then on top of that a thousand engineering really well-paid jobs is not a positive for the state and I, i think your dad is actually on one of the committees with senator wyden and a number of other people that are trying to bring the intels of the world back into the state but when local policy restricts businesses, it's a net negative, and it sends a bad signal really to anyone who's looking to put down roots and, and invest in businesses in Oregon. And unfortunately, it's very hard to stop once momentum starts going in one direction. And if you look at the statistics of, of pre pandemic and post pandemic, for downtown Portland, the city is still down 40% as far as foot traffic is concerned, which is number three in the country. San Francisco's the worst, Cleveland second and we're third. So, you know, as far as, you know, and unfortunately, Portland is the engine of growth for the state. So it's scary. You know, I look at cities in the Midwest, you look at a city like Detroit or Cleveland or Pittsburgh, what happened to them in the 80s and 90s, once the momentum starts going against you, it's very hard to turn that tide and bring businesses back in. And, you know, it's, you know, we're lucky that, you know, Medford is doing really well, and Bend is doing really well. But a lot of that has to do with more of retirement communities and less about economic engines. And You know, you need a lot of businesses to employ a lot of people. We have a lot of graduates graduating every year, and we have a lot of people moving to Portland, and we have a lot of people moving to Bend, and a lot of people moving to Medford, and they need jobs, and we need high-paying jobs. And unfortunately, it doesn't look as though the state is, is on your side, and it's competition. I mean, this is what people in Oregon and leaders in Oregon need to realize. If you're a big business you're going to have 10, 15, 20 states going after the jobs that you're going to be providing. Whether that's building a plant or whether that's having a headquarters in a state,
2: we need to step up and get into that competition. The point you bring up is really interesting about the foot traffic. I didn't know it was that low, but I did just read an article from the Oregonian yesterday that said that Mayor Wheeler is going to basically force a lot of the city employees to go back into the office, I'm sure probably to do coordination, you know, making sure people are working or whatever, too. But one of the reasons stated was because of the foot traffic, they want people going back downtown, buying lunch, stopping at the businesses and all of that. I know that's been a big drag on major cities across the country. I didn't know Portland was one of the top three, but that's really interesting. And then Jimmy did kind of want to ask a broader question, because I think, you know, this plays into politics a lot more than I think most people give credit to, but just kind of the economy in general right now. I know you're a finance guy used to trade, if I'm not mistaken, oil commodities, too. So definitely want to ask you about kind of the energy, you know, what's happening with that. But, you know, there's been a lot of headlines, mostly over the past six months about kind of like big tech companies laying people off, like Salesforce laid people off, Meta laid some people off. I think Google's maybe made some layoffs, or at least they have a hiring freeze in place. So like, there's a lot of big technology companies that are doing this. But of course, Intel, of course, is either has laid people off or is planning to lay people off. I don't remember exactly. But I think you're finally also starting to see some of these cuts come to the more normal part of the economy, right? Like there was a big article that said Pepsi Cola is going to lay off a pretty significant portion of its white collar workforce. So like some jobs are starting to be cut right in more industries than just tech and the unemployment rate is still pretty low right now. But I think at least most people think we're probably headed into a recession how do you think that, and I mean, obviously, there's no correct answer to this, and nobody can predict this accurately. But I mean, where do you think kind of things go from here over the next year or two, just because I think that, right, if the, you know, inflation has been high, and if the economy actually does start to slip into a recession, you know, that's going to have major political ramifications for 2023, for some of those states that have elections then, but also, of course, for 2024, on the state level and the presidential level. So Where do you just kind of general thoughts on the economy? You feel good about it, feel bad about it, mix. Really curious to hear about that just from your business background.
1: Yeah, I think the economy is actually holding up surprisingly well considering how rampant inflation is. You know, when I fill up my car and it's, you know, $130, $140, that is really that hurts. And for people that are living paycheck to paycheck, that is devastating, right? And if you combine that with the inflation and food, you know, people are unfortunately are having to make hard decisions right now about buying, you know, gasoline or buying extra bread. And so that's not good. Now going forward, I think that the economy is going to have a softer landing. And I think that you know, the banks are actually Are much better prepared for this downturn in the in the economy and i think that we're seeing oil prices come down which will help at the pump and with divided government over the course of the last 70 years this is when the u.s economy actually does the best so that's what gives me optimism Hmm. because you're going to have a republican controlled congress and so The White House and the Senate aren't going to be able to pass any ridiculous spending bills. They're not going to be able to pass anything that is, you know, going to hurt the economy. So I think that that's actually a a net positive. And, you know, as far as the tech layoffs are concerned, you know, if you look at a company like Meta or Facebook, as most people know it as, I find that story to be kind of shocking. They've lost $800 in market cap. I mean, that to me is highly irresponsible. But that's, you know, something for a much more tech finance focused podcast. I do believe, though, that the economy is going to do okay, I think we're going to get through this in the next year or two. And, you know, I think the stock market's actually going to do very well over the next two years. And a lot of that just has to do with historical patterns of having divided government, because with divided government, it allows business leaders to say, okay. What we know is over the next two years, nothing is really going to change, right? There might be some things at the edges, but it allows leaders to plan two years out and say, all right, we're not going to have huge regulation coming down the pipeline. We're not going to have huge new laws or taxes. So let's invest. Now, granted, interest rates are much higher. That's going to hurt the housing market. But, you know, the housing market was, I mean, this is the hottest housing market in living memory, you know, perhaps the hottest housing market ever over the last couple of years. So, you know, having that slow down a little bit, I think is good. And, you know, for Oregon, you know, I, certainly, I'm concerned for Oregon because Oregon just isn't that well positioned to take advantage, as we discussed earlier. You know, we're not creating new businesses. We're not creating new jobs. So I think from, the US's perspective, we're in a really good position. Certainly, if you are an export driven economy, you know, the Chinese lockdowns, you know, that is not positive. Uh, I'm certainly worried about Asian economies and any economy that's over reliant on Chinese economy for growth. But that, you know, the Chinese are such huge buyers of oil, you know, and if their economy slows down, they're going to import a lot less oil, which will help everyone because I am worried that oil really can't go too much further down as long as this war in Ukraine keeps going. Because at the end of the day, the Russians are the largest exporters of oil, you know, well, outside of Saudi Arabia. So, you know, I mean, the second largest exporter of oil in the world. So, you know, I am positive, but guarded. You know, I think, I think it's going to be a challenging couple of years. But at the same time, I think it having divided government is a huge net positive for our country.
0: One of the questions that I had while I was listening to you talk about those issues, do you think there's a particular issue, maybe like just one or two, that Democrats and Republicans, either at the federal or state level, could work together on, even if they don't broadly agree about what it means to be pro-business? Because this is the part where I need to chime in for Ben and say, Democrats like business too. And you know maybe we just don't want the big businesses that don't pay any taxes like Amazon and pay their... Uh, employees, nothing. Right. And this is where I come back and I say, well, if you regulate small businesses out of existence, you can't have those either. So, so anyway, a conversation I'm sure Ben and I will have later and enjoy very much. I I, I
2: appreciate you having a conversation between you and Ben. uh, uh, (laughs) Without him here. He'll love that.
0: He'll love that. So anyway, Jimmy, yeah, that's my question is, are there business issues that you think cross party lines that are likely to be tackled either in the Oregon at the state level or at the federal level?
1: Well, certainly, I would think that, you know, the crypto markets are going to be coming under a microscope. I think both sides of the aisle can agree on that. You know, being in a congressional race in Oregon, I found it very fascinating that $11 million was spent on a candidate by Sam Bankman Freed in the sixth congressional. And I also found it fascinating that I believe it was Tina Kotech took $500,000. Maybe I have that wrong. You're going to have to fact check me on that from a Las Vegas crypto, which was also an FTX. Yep. So, you know, those are that's a lot of money that was going into politics. And if Sam Bankman Fried was spending $11 million for a for Carrick Flynn in a losing effort in a congressional seat, who knows what they were spending elsewhere. So I I do think that uh, both Dems and Republicans can come come in agreement that maybe having a little more regulation as far as these um, cryptocurrency trading companies is concerned would be a net positive. I think whenever billions of dollars are kind of vanish overnight, that really focuses minds, especially when it's such a public occurrence. So now, I, I don't know how many uh, small investors that hurt. I, I don't know enough about it, but I do think that that is something that they could definitely cooperate on. I would highly encourage the Oregonians that are representing us in the federal government to actually come up with a solution to stop forest fires. I don't know why we can't seem to come to an agreement that forest fires are bad and this policy of letting a fire burn until it's 25,000 acres, how that works. You know, if you are a Democrat, I would, and you are an environmentalist, you would think that the last thing you would want would be forest fires burning. You would think that that would be an easy solution. And we have the tools. The Department of Defense can literally spot a fire that's, you know, an acre to five acres large, and they can pinpoint it and say, okay, this is where we need to fight a fire. I think that that would be something that that we could agree on at this point, but you know, unfortunately the last 25 years has proven me wrong on that. As far as other issues, you know, I think that there should be common agreement on looking at the money that we're spending in Ukraine. You know, I think it's good to track that money, you know, whenever you're spending, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars uh, of government money, it's always good to know where it's going. And I think Democrats and Republicans are going to hopefully focus on that. On a state level, you know, that's that that's a, a better uh, question for you to answer, Reagan. So.
0: Semiconductors is obviously going to be really big. There were some presentations in a couple of the committees during legislative days this week. And the big discussion points from business are, look, we like the idea of helping the semiconductor industry. All the other industries like the idea of fixing their problems on land use, on available industrial land, on taxes, on livability for their workers, on housing costs, right? Everybody wants to fix all those problems. What we saw in the response from some of the more left tax groups and others are basically like, they're saying that the giveaways aren't aren't of any value. The businesses don't stay or don't develop enough. They kind of seeded semiconductors, which I think is pretty funny. They were like, you know, we just want to make sure that the semiconductor giveaways and, and tax credits and all that kind of stuff are managed properly, but they didn't want to extend them to other businesses, basically. they didn't They didn't feel like it was worth it for Oregon to develop the business base via, you know, tax credits, you know, delays and deferments of taxes for, you know, 10 to 20 years in exchange for jobs, right? All that kind of stuff. And certainly you can debate about cases where those haven't worked out the way that we've wanted to, either because of macroeconomic factors or other kinds of things, right? But generally, I think what you're going to see is at the state level is that there's a desire and a verbiage of fixing the business climate, but not enough desire to beat the far left groups that prevent that from happening. The far left groups on environmentalism, on land use. And then just generally a lot of the public sector union groups who generally like the idea of forcing businesses to pay more to pay for the state, right? Because they figured out that it's not super popular to raise taxes on average people. They vote you out of office. So they just raise the cost of doing business, right? That's my analysis. They'll push back on that a little bit, right? But I'm pretty comfortable providing that as the kind of starting point for where they're going to end up, right? A lot of lip service, not as much action as you'd really want to see.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, everybody talks about homelessness and crime, but you know, it doesn't seem as though the leadership has actually come up with any solutions. And, you know, the one thing I can tell you is throwing money at problems like homelessness doesn't seem to solve it, unfortunately. And I would highly recommend to you guys and anyone listening, the book San Francisco. It's a really mm, interesting book. Yeah, it's a really interesting look into how San Francisco has been dealing with their homelessness issues, which is worse than anything that we have in Oregon. But, you know, they basically went from spending, you know, $150, $200 million a year on homelessness to now they're spending, I think, $700 million in homelessness. I think it went up $500. I think that's what the book said. And so, and the problem has actually gotten much worse. So there are lessons to be learned. Other states do it a lot better, you know, and I'm not just talking about conservative states. I'm talking about cities, right? So, you know, if you look at a city like Houston, or Miami, or New York, I mean, these are places with Democratic mayors, and they have been able to handle homelessness on a much better rate than we are on the West Coast. Unfortunately, cities like Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, just do not handle their homeless situation well and there lessons to be learned it's not as though our problems are unique to oregon everybody has issues with housing with homelessness with a, with affordable housing education and so you know unfortunately on a local level it just seems as though this notion that we're going to keep doing the same thing and it'll work itself out you know it, to me is, is you know, it's sad. And I hope that we take a different direction. I hope that Democrats take ownership of these issues. But, you know, if the past is any uh, indication,
2: that doesn't seem
1: to, uh, it, it doesn't seem as though they're going to do that.
2: Yeah, and so, Jimmy, I want to transition us to talking a little bit about 2024. And yeah. people might be saying, oh, my God, we're not even done with 2022 yet. Uh, yes. But of course it's it's never too early to start the predictions. Sure. Uh, see how wrong or see how right you might be. It's <laughs> funny when I, you know, obviously chat about this with a lot of people and I tell them that if they remember at one point Rand Paul was actually in first place in the national polls in 2014 for the 2016 Republican primary, which of course You know, and at one point, Scott Walker was first place in Iowa, who, of course, Scott Walker did not even actually end up making it to any state. He dropped out before any voting started. But I think in terms of the seats that will be up in Oregon, both in the congressional level, right? I mean, you have you have Lori, you have potentially some other seats that may be more or less competitive, depending on who's on top of the ballot. And of course, you have a lot of state level seats that I think will be dependent on that, too. What's kind of your broad take right now on the 2024 field? Obviously, Trump is currently declared. I think there's a number of other candidates who will, probably a decent number of them won't actually jump in. Maybe I'll be totally wrong in the next two or three months, but we shall potentially see. But what's kind of your general take on the Republican side of the field right now? And who do you think might might end up actually being at the forefront, winning the primary? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> talk about way too early predictions. I well, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this I, in the headline I, of the podcast <laughs> to get the to get the, the catchy clickbait. So Jimmy, sure, sure. on 2024. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Glenn Youngkin and Nikki Haley, you know, as president and vice president. You know, I'm very worried for our party. President Trump has an incredibly loyal following, and he is going to be, I think, in this till the end. So. That's one of those, you know, how do you how do you deal with Trump if you are a potential rival, right? If you're DeSantis, if you're Yunkin, I'm trying to think, you know, I would love a governor Sununu in New Hampshire. I mean, this is a guy who won a governor's race in a 50-50 state going away. And, you know, the Senate candidate on the Republican side actually lost. And it would also be interesting to have a governor. In the uh, first primary state, obviously, Iowa is a caucus. You look at someone like Nikki Haley. She is very interesting candidate. South Carolina's the second primary state, and that, you know, if she could survive, if she could stay in, you know, the top three or four, she would be very competitive. Ted Cruz will definitely be running. Now, can Rubio also run with DeSantis? Maybe. And then, you know, you have Mike Pence and he's, you know, doing his book tour now. So I think it's, you know, it's it could be a competitive field. But at the end of the day, I think it could be really hard on Republicans because I don't see the scenario where President Trump, if he doesn't win, I don't see how he goes away quietly, if that makes sense. You know and unfortunately you know for the party you know we need to coalesce behind a really strong candidate and you know his numbers among republicans are still really strong and i would i would say if i had to bet money i would bet on president trump winning the primary at this point but if he loses the primary Will he then coalesce behind the person that wins? So that to me is the biggest fear for our party, that there would be a huge fight and that we won't coalesce. That was the smartest thing that the Democrats did in 2020. You know, they had the threat of Bernie Sanders winning. Bernie almost won Iowa. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's still an argument to this day whether he won or Pete Buttigieg. But, you know, Buttigieg dropped out. Amy Klobuchar dropped out right before South Carolina. They all backed Biden, right? So therefore, he they had a really strong, well, in parentheses, well, he did win the presidency, so he was yeah. a strong candidate. But, exactly, uh, you know, they had a really strong candidate to take on Donald Trump, whereas if Bernie Sanders had been nominated, you know, the Democrats lose that election. So the question that you have to answer as, as the Republican Party is, you know, if Trump is the nominee, can he win? You know, and that's what people should be voting on because you want to support the candidate has the best opportunity to win. And then if he loses, how does he support the candidate? And would he run as a third party candidate? So, you know, for me, I have yet to read an analysis of the 2024 election on the Republican side. It's Mm -hmm. not really messy. And it's it's worrying because we have a really strong bench right now. I mean, I look at a guy like Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, and I say, boy, like incredibly smart guy, you know, was built, you know, the Carlisle Group, which is one of the largest private equity groups, huge family man, is a brilliant politician. And, you know, I think that we have, you know, Governor DeSantis is a strong candidate. Clearly, you know, he raised $206 million so he can fundraise. Nikki Haley's very strong. You know, I'm not sure if Mike Pence has the firepower to get there, but you know, there's always going to be a dark horse candidate,
0: right? So yeah, it's probably Mike Pompeo uh, when he came to Oregon a couple of months ago and seemed like he was exploring running for president. So I'll. I'll I'll name him as my dark horse, Alex. You can you. We've talked about this. I won't out your position on this unless you really want to. But my sense of it is, is that one, you can survive a pretty messy primary and still win the presidency. But you've got to be a good candidate coming out of the messy primary. You can't be a you can't have be a candidate with a lot of baggage, like we saw in some of these Senate races, right? You brought up Herschel, which I think is a really good point. He still gets very very close in a very tough Senate race with a ton of baggage. Imagine Herschel without the baggage, and I. You know, you're looking at a win there, right? And so I think you're definitely spot on in terms of your look at 24 as being a tough race. But I think if nobody challenges Trump and we don't find make an attempt to coalesce around him, he's gonna win by default, right? And we're gonna self self-defeat if we think that the best direction for the party is to move on from him, right? If we think he spooks independent voters too much or spooks female voters too much or what have you, right? there's a chance that he transitions to being a different kind of candidate, but that seems like a pretty low chance at this point. He seems like he's pretty baked into what he is. So I would say your analysis is definitely spot on, but I think that there's, I'm going to take the optimist route just because I like, prefer the optimist route that republicans could coalesce around a different candidate you know someone who comes out of the gate stronger but maybe smarter because walker flamed out because he couldn't keep the cash flow going on his campaign right he spent like he was the front runner but he wasn't yet he wasn't established enough to do that and so he had no cash and he had to drop out of the race before he hit the first state right if desantis takes a dip, but runs the same type of unifying campaign where he can run win social issue and business voters and those kinds of kind of hold those two combinations then yes he has a really good shot i think at winning that primary but like you said a messy situation with a lot of candidates that all get 15 percent, and i would say trump does win that
1: well and that's the question do the republicans coalesce right like the democrats did so if you have 15 people running in the primary through South Carolina. I don't see how Trump loses. But, you know, if it's head to head against like a DeSantis or a Yunkin, then, you know, I think the race could be more of a toss-up. So it'll be really interesting to see cuz Trump is going to be incredibly well funded. Obviously name ID is 100%. So it'll be interesting. And as far as Oregon's concerned, um you know, it is critical to have someone really strong running for president. You know, the 5th Congressional District, Lori's District, it's going to be a hard one. I think Biden won that by nine points. So, you know, that's it's going to be a hard district. But, you know, I'm sure she's going to be fundraising starting right now and, and probably, you know, hopefully raise a ton of money and and keep that seat because we really need at least two people in our delegation. And in 24, I think it's going to be really hard to pick up the six. And the fourth is also going to be hard. Just if you look at the numbers that Biden won those districts by, the math is not in our favor in a presidential year um, in those districts. So, you know, it's, it's going to be critical. And then, you know, we have to hope that, you know, Biden's also the candidate on the left because Biden is very weak. And the polling that I've seen shows that he is very beatable. So I think that could be a positive for us. Yeah.
2: So so Jimmy, I wanted to ask you sort of a follow-up to that in the sense that you dealt with and engaged with a lot of these people and you're probably still you know, close with some of them is essentially how you would rate both how the the state party, so like the Oregon GOP, as well as kind of the national party. I know that's kind of hard to put, you know, wrap together nicely. There's obviously the RNC, there's the NRCC, there's the outside groups, et cetera. But basically I, you know, what do you think that they, and I think that the Oregon Republican Party, especially under the new leadership of Justin, is just, I mean, substantially better than it was four to six years ago. I remember when I was in college and I was engaging with the ORP, and it was like truly, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty wild. Uh, and I think the party has professionalized a lot more, which has been good because, of course, it makes them open to receiving donors, maybe hiring full time staff and things like that. But I think 2022 was definitely a building year in that aspect. but just kind of in terms of the actual operation and the apparatus of the party, like, what do you think that they did well this time around? And then what do you like, what would you like to see if you were GOP chair of Oregon, for example, like some of those improvements you would make to help the GOP basically prepare for the next cycle?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, you know, it's not a secret. But you know, the dirty secret of politics is money. Right. So especially at the federal level, you know, if you're, Running a race, you got to, you know, raise $2,900 per person. And that's really hard to do. Now, you know, Oregon allows much larger contributions, obviously, which helps. But the number one thing the local party can do is fundraise. And then from there, build out the grassroots, right? You need to be able to compete. The Democratic Party in Oregon is unbelievable going door to door knocking, getting their people to the polls. That is their strength. And we need to match that. And it's not going to happen in one election cycle. It's not going to happen in two or three. You know, this is it has to be you have to have a 10 year plan, really. Right. So you have to think, okay, you know, where are we going to be by in the 2026 election? Like, are we going to have the firepower to take down a Jeff Merkley in 2026 if you're a Republican Party? Are we gonna have the grassroots to go door to door to compete in a race like that? And they're building blocks. You know, These things don't happen overnight, but at the same time, there are green shoots that you see across Oregon and you see enthusiasm in the party. You see, as we've talked about on multiple occasions during this podcast, there is anger. So we have opportunity to pull people in because when people are angry, they look for change as far as the national party is concerned i thought they did a really good job you know i think uh in laurie's campaign they spent maybe six million dollars which was an incredible amount of money and then they the national governors association you know i gotta look at the numbers again but i believe they spent what three or four million dollars for christine so you know the national party actually thought we had a chance in Oregon. And the reason they thought we had a chance just comes down to numbers, right? Uh, These decisions are made on polling. So, you know, I think Lori was winning in the polling the whole time. I don't don't remember ever seeing her down in the fifth congressional district. And uh, I think Christine in the governor's race had a shot, you know, all the way till the end. So, you know, if the numbers are there, that's when really smart people are gonna play in the state of Oregon. And we just need to present candidates that are really strong, that national parties and national funders are gonna wanna fund. You have to remember that $6 billion was spent in this election in 2022. Now, I'm like jumping up and down because we got $10 million being spent on the Republican side from out of state. But just imagine if we can turn that 10 million into 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, All of a sudden, we can change the dynamics of the state of Oregon. So, you know, the possibility is there. It's going to take the grassroots. And above all, it's going to take really strong candidates. So we need to build the bench. That's the critical part. Uh, If you're a Republican in Oregon, you know, it's getting on school boards and then bringing people from the school boards into the state house and then into the state Senate. You know, you got to build the bench because you're hoping that in 10 years from now, you've got, you know, 10 or 15 candidates that you can look at and say any of those people could win a congressional race
0: or the governor's
1: race. So that, that would be my goal for the local party.
0: Well, Alex, do you have uh, anything else you wanted to ask Jimmy before we wrap it up? No, I don't think so. Well, uh, thanks, Jimmy. Really appreciate your your time. Again, your willingness to jump in here at the last minute and give us this great analysis. And we're looking forward to having you back on the pod sometime soon to talk more about what you're doing next and and what happens in politics because as we know uh doesn't take very long for things to change in politics a year is a really long time in politics so
1: uh, absolutely thank you guys for having me it's been a pleasure being with you